My prayer this morning, Father, is a simple one, that you would give me a heart for your word and a word for our hearts. Amen. Amen. So speaking of new and improved, one of the things I wanted for Christmas was a new rotisserie. Now, in my old life, when I had to downsize and move into the condominium, there wasn't room for a rotisserie, and I didn't get to take it with me. But now we live in a real house. I wanted a rotisserie. I wanted the rotisserie so much that I bought it for myself and gave it to Vicky and told her to give it to me. <laughs> and I'm a good shopper. I found a scratch and dent one. It has a thumb-sized dent in the back. You can't even see it. It's $120 off. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so Vicky has had some rotisserie food, but the, the neat thing is, it's like everything else these days, it's new and improved. Right? You can't just buy the same thing anymore. You've got to buy the new and improved version. So what, what, it, what it's like for me is... You know, I like Paul Harvey and the rest of the story. He tells the story of a little boy, three years old, was going grocery shopping with his grandmother. The grandmother sat him in the cart, and she said, Look, kid, I'm not buying you cookies. I'm tired of you every time we come to the grocery store begging for cookies, begging for cookies. There are no cookies today. We're just going to shop, we're going to get our stuff, and we're going to go home. No cookies. They go into the store, and he's three years old. So what did he say? Grandmom, can I have some cookies? We talked about that, Grandmom said, and she kept going. Grandmom, could I please have some chocolate chip cookies? Grandmom said, you know what? You're on my last nerve here. No cookies. Ain't happening. And they got in the line for the checkout, and Grandmom still hadn't bought the cookies, and and the good news is grandmom took the kid to church with her regularly. So just as they got up to the uh, cashier, the little boy threw his hands in his ears and said, hands in the air and said, in the name of Jesus, could I get some chocolate chip cookies? Grandmom and the little boy went home with 23 boxes of chocolate chip cookies. Everybody in the store bought him a set. That's the rest of the story. These poor people in Ephesus had only ever heard about it. They'd never experienced the Holy Spirit. They never heard the rest of the story. Now, one of the things we talk about in seminary a lot, because I went to a seminary that was 60% Baptist and 30% Methodist and 10% Presbyterian. Now, if you know anything about those denominations, Baptists do what's called believer's baptism. Methodists and Presbyterians do what's called infant baptism. The United Methodists, the Catholics, the Episcopals, the Lutherans, and the Presbyterians all answer this question, who does the work in baptism? By saying God does. God marks the child. It's like spiritual circumcision. In fact, the Methodist Church and the Episcopals, after a child is baptized, call them a probationary member of the church. And when they join the church at confirmation, they say, do you recognize the promise that was made at your baptism. 
Now, having gone to the Baptist seminary, I also know the other answer to the question. The Baptists would say that God does the work in baptism, but the, the, the individual needs to make a decision for Christ, and that the baptism is marking their new life in Jesus Christ. The question here becomes, does baptism make you a Christian, or does it mark you as a Christian? And the answer for both questions is no. The only thing that makes you a Christian is saying in your heart, I believe that Jesus died for me, and I accept him as my Lord and personal Savior. You've heard me say this in Bible study often. There's no second question when you get to heaven. You knock on the door of heaven. St. Peter says, did you know Jesus? Yes, I did. Hold it before you come in. Were you baptized as a baby or as a grown-up? Now, there is one denomination who are called the Anabaptists. Anna, meaning again, they're from the uh, 1500s, and they actually believe you should do both. They baptize you as a baby and as a believer because they didn't want to miss the boat. Well, there, there is no baptism boat to get to heaven. It's not how you get there. So these people in Ephesus had heard that God offers forgiveness of sins. And they had been baptized with the baptism of John the Baptist. That's, we talked about him in the announcements for Advent. That he proclaimed that Jesus was coming and that he would bring us a new baptism. John baptized with water and he said that Jesus would baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. So then we have to ask the question, well, what, what is the complete gospel? Because these people in Ephesus, I want you to hear this, consider themselves believers. They consider themselves part of the church, and yet they didn't have all the information. There's a story, and I don't know if it's true or not, of a group of settlers in colonial Virginia who decided that they wanted to move further west. And they moved further west out of Virginia, and they found a, a nice tract of land, say West Virginia and the Appalachians, and they set up their town, and they really didn't have communication with anybody else, and they literally missed the entire Revolutionary War. So people, other settlers, after we were our own country, came through and said, under, under which government do you operate? And they said, oh, we are... We are followers of King George. We're English citizens. And they said, how can that be? And they, they shared with them that the Revolutionary War had happened, that America had separated, and that just by living there, they were no longer English citizens. They had been changed, and they didn't know it. I want you to think of the people in Ephesus like that. They had been changed, but they didn't yet know it. See, some of us believe in Jesus, and some of us believe in Jesus and live like we believe in Jesus. I want you to hear that. That's a very important distinction for the church today. There are many people who say, yes, I believe in Jesus. Uh, my kids used to make jokes in the car, you know, turn or burn, fly or fry, you know. You, you got one choice or the other. You're going to heaven, you're going to hell. Get me out of hell. You know, we're selling fire insurance. Those are the people who believe. 
But then there's another step that you have to take. You have to live for Jesus. Jesus needs to permeate every area of your entire life. Does he permeate your family? Does he permeate your workplace? Does he permeate the block on which you live? Do the people in your block know that there's something different and wonderful about you because you belong to Jesus? See, the challenge of the church is this. Believing is salvation. Living is not salvation. Just because you act like a Christian, just because you do good things, doesn't mean you're going to have eternal life. Uh, when you're trained for evangelism explosion, they ask people, if you were to die tonight, are you sure that you would go to heaven? And even believers waffle on that question. And then you ask them, why, why are you not sure? Well, I, I think I'm doing a good job. I, I think I'll get into heaven because of the things I do. No, living is evidence of your heart. It is not evidence of your salvation. The only thing that saves us is a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come only to forgive our sins, but to give us abundant life. These poor people in Ephesus had only heard the first part of the story. Forgiveness, but they'd never heard about abundant life. So the story's told about a little boy who got a slingshot. And he went out in the woods and he was picking up stones and that little boy couldn't hit anything with his slingshot. You know, you've heard the old expression, he couldn't hit the broad side of a barn with the broad side of a barn. He couldn't hit anything. And he practiced and practiced. He was the worst with a slingshot. So he came home and his grandmother's duck was walking across the barnyard and he took aim because he was sure he wouldn't hit it. Bam! Killed the duck. He scoops up the duck. He's fairly certain nobody saw him. And he buries it behind the barn. He sits down for dinner. And his sister Sally sits next to him. Grandma says, Sally, it's, it's your turn to help with the dishes tonight. Sally says, oh no, my little brother's going to help. And before he can get a word out of her, out of his mouth, she leans over and says, remember the duck. He realizes that Sally knows. I'll help with the dishes, Grandma. And for the next two weeks, every time Sally had something to do, a chore, she would volunteer her little brother and lean over and say, remember the duck. Finally, the little boy got so upset about having to do all of his sister's chores that in tears he went to grandma and he confessed that he had killed the duck with his new slingshot and that in essence his sister had been holding him hostage with guilt. Grandma said, I, I knew you killed the duck. I saw it through the window while I was washing dishes. I forgave you the moment it happened. But I wanted to see how long you would let your sister make a slave out of you. Satan whispers in your ear, remember the duck. That's why, church, we talk about forgiveness all the time. Because we sin all the time, and Satan whispers about our sin in our ear. He whispers, you're a liar, you're a cheater, you're an adulterer, you're a loser, you're an addict, you're a failure. 
And Paul comes to whisper, and Jesus reminds us, remember your baptism. John's baptism was for the forgiveness of sins. Remember your baptism. Now, I have a friend who talks about this passage, and he actually has some water from the, the communion font in a, in, a, in a Methodist or a Baptist or Presbyterian church. They have a font so the pastor can scoop up the water and baptize the baby. So he takes the water out of the font, and while he's preaching this and saying, remember your baptism, he's actually re-sprinkling the church. Now, theologically, that's on the edge because Paul wrote, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So no denomination other than the Anabaptists recommends that you get re-baptized. You don't have to get redone. Now, the Methodist Church, and you know that's where I was trained, they actually have a service called the Remembrance of Your Baptism. Because sometimes in our lives, we need to have a spiritual restart. There's sometimes when we just say, you know what, Lord? Can, can we get a new egg of silly putty? <laughs> right? I, I want to be clean. I want to start fresh. And the Methodist Church, like all the other major denominations, does not rebaptize. But they have a service called Remembering Your Baptism. And people would come up to the altar and the pastor would make a cross on their head with the water from the font and say, remember your baptism. So you either need to be made or marked by your baptism. They're both true. You need to believe and live your faith. And the third thing we need to talk about today is what will your legacy be? At the end of your life, what will people say about your faith and how you responded to the word of God? In 1968, in Mexico City Olympics, Tanzania sent a runner named John Stephen Aquari, Aquari, yes, to run the marathon. You may know this story. He started out with all the other runners and he was injured during the marathon. He was in great pain and limped along. He could no longer run. And an hour after the last marathoner made it to the stadium, John Akari came in. There were only a few spectators left, but as he limped around and crossed the finish line, they erupted into cheers for him because he had finished the race. There was a man who was documenting the Olympics. His name was Greenspan, and he, he took the opportunity to interview this runner. And he said, why? Why would you run 26 miles in utter agony. And this is what he said. He said, I don't think you understand. My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. Those of us who are called to serve Jesus are called not only to start, but to finish the race. There was a an Episcopalian minister named John Henry Newman. Now, if you've ever visited a Catholic church, they probably have a Newman Center or a Newman Room. Let me tell you why that is. 
He was following his faith and he wound up in Rome and he converted back from Anglican to Catholic and he actually became a cardinal in the Roman Catholic Church. And he is the person who literally started the whole Sunday school movement for the Catholic Church. While serving as a cardinal, he received this message from an English priest in a tidy village of Brennan. It was a mill town north of Birmingham, and it seems that they had had an epidemic of cholera. It had decimated the village, and the priest was asking for help. He was asking for another priest to assist him in giving the sacraments, administering last rites, and to do funerals, because so many people were dying. Newman read the letter in his office. His office is still there today. The Catholic Church has left it exactly as it was the day he read the letter. Why? Because he came, the secretary came in and said, we need to give an immediate reply to Brennan. Your eminence, what shall we do? And Newman answered, the people are suffering and dying. How can I send a priest to do this work? I must go myself. That's what we're talking about this month as we get ready for our annual meeting. As we look forward to January 1st, 2022. You can't just believe. You have to live. You have to enjoy the blessings of forgiveness, but go forward and share those blessings with other people. You can't just start the race. You have to finish. You can't just hear the call. You have to answer the call. Can we go to the next side, Will? (coughs) Next week and the weeks following, this is going to be, uh, this covenant is going to be at the back of the church. I want to encourage you to take two copies. One for the 31st to put into the offering and one for you to keep for yourself. A written record of a covenant that you're going to make between now, with God now, and look forward to next year. The first thing says, I will read the Bible and pray for my church and my church family blank days a week. Now, why did I put it like that? Some of you aren't studying and praying at all, and seven days a week would make your head explode. I have a good friend who says, if you're doing it three days a week, you need one more to get halfway there. So, if you've never made a commitment to read your Bible and pray, I'm happy. I think God would be happy if you take one step to one day a week. If you're doing three, move to four. Four, move to five. You can see how this works. That's why I left it blank. I will attend Sunday worship blank times a month. Now, I did that because I have a beautiful wife who is a nurse and works weekends. And she feels guilty when she can't come to church. And I'm like, dear... (laughs) You were a COVID nurse last night. You did your ministry. Go to bed. So you might not be able to say, I'll be here four or three or two. Your job, your responsibilities might take you away. And it's between you and God when you go. But I want you to make an honest commitment to attend the worship of God. I will seek out quality Bible teaching other than worship blank times a month. Now we have... A woman's Bible study. It's probably starting back up in February. We have Thursday night. We have Sunday before church. Now, if you can't attend any of those, there are wonderful teachers on the radio or on the internet. 
I'll tell you, Charles Stanley and Chuck Smith really spoke to me when I was a young man wrestling with whether or not to go to seminary. I got good Bible teaching from, in the old days, WZZD. So I am willing to tell you that I am not the most exciting, best Bible teacher there is in the whole world. I, my style might not match with yours. My time that we have here might not match with yours. But make a commitment to seek out good quality Bible teaching. I will pray for God's leading and bring blank, unchurched or unsaved individuals to church this year. I have a pastor who prays, prayed many years ago for one decision for Christ a month. And then he prayed for one a week. Then he prayed for two a week. Then he prayed for three a week. Now his church has 3,000 people in it. But it doesn't work unless the unchurched and the unsaved are brought here to hear the word of God. I will seek the Lord's heart and vision for ministry in which I can actively participate in 2021. That's what we're looking for. We're looking to start ministries, not programs, ministries that will reach the people of our community. There are more people that don't go to church than do go to church. And we're looking for ways that this church can look forward to 2022 and reach out to our community. Number six, a need or needs that I would like to see addressed in my church. We have needs. We have spiritual needs that may not be addressed. And as we've talked about the last few weeks, if you have a need that you think needs to be addressed, you are probably not alone. And that might open the door to a new ministry for our church. As members of the body of Christ, we will, with the gospel, reach out to our community, stand together in worship, and expand the ministries of this congregation. Now, the signature is optional because when you put your covenant in the box, God knows whose covenant is there. We don't need to do any signature matching like they do for the po politic, for the elections. God knows your covenant with him. And I encourage you to keep a copy for yourself in your Bible. So next year, you can look at it and say, I did it, and now I can grow more, or didn't quite make it there, and you might need to talk about that baptism of forgiveness. I want you to think of one more thing, because I'm, I'm running low on time, and that's this. The Holy Spirit did not come at the point of baptism. It says that they were baptized in the name of Jesus and then Paul laid hands on them and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. Prophesied did not mean that they told the future. Prophecy meant that they shared the word of God that was on their heart. Prophecy in the New Testament meant preaching. They were so excited about what God had done for them that they could not contain it and they shared it with the people around them. The church in Ephesus started with only 12 people. I want you to think about that. And by the time Paul was writing to them later, they were an established church, and they were so established that one of the disciples retired to Ephesus. I don't know if you know this, but that's where scholars believe the apostle John spent the end of his life in his 80s. They were such an established church, they had an old minister's home in Ephesus. And the old minister that lived there was the Apostle John. Wouldn't that be a great place to visit? 
God is calling this church, individuals, and the church collective to do great and mighty things. We are heading in the direction that Christ is laying before us. If you've never made a decision for Christ, our front pew is open and during the last hymn, if you want to talk to someone about what it would be to make a decision for Jesus Christ as your savior, become one of those believers and start living, the front pew is open. If God is putting a call on your heart to start a ministry, if you have a vision for something that should happen here that you believe God is calling us to set forth, again, the front pew is open and our, our deacons, our pastors would love to pray with you. And again, if you have a personal need or a request for prayer, during that last hymn, He Leadeth Me, we would love for you to come forward and have an opportunity to pray with the pastors or the deacons. Amen.